I've chosen a text this morning that is just four verses long, Colossians chapter 2. We had our reading from there, so go back there. We're going to start in verse 20 and go through the end of the chapter. And this may seem like an obscure passage in a sort of -of out-of-the-way location. These are the closing four verses of Colossians chapter 2, but this passage neatly summarizes the point the Apostle Paul was making in this chapter, Colossians 2, and it's a message that is especially pertinent to you and me living in this postmodern California culture, and so I want to look at it. And let me give you some context. You heard the the context from our reading, but Paul is writing to the church at Colossae from Rome, where he is under house arrest, and we know that because in the very last verse of Colossians, he tells them, remember my chains. He is literally chained at the ankle to a Roman soldier who guards him 24-7. I think he changed soldiers every watch but he was always chained to at least one guy by these iron shackles. In fact, I own a a set of Roman shackles that came from that era. They are heavy iron cuffs with a very unwieldy chain that is designed to secure a person's ankle to the guard. In fact, I thought about bringing my Roman ankle cuffs so that you could see them this morning, but they're so bulky and awkward, I didn't want to drag them around the church campus. But just know that when Paul says, remember my chains, he is talking about at least seven pounds of iron that kept him fettered to a guard at all times. And so it's obvious from the epistle itself that this is a letter that Paul wrote at some point during the two years described at the very end of the book of Acts when Luke tells us Paul was under house arrest. Acts 28, 16 says, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. So he's chained to this guard at all times, which means he has no privacy, no dignity, no ability to enjoy any of the normal comforts of life, except for the fellow saints who were able to visit him during those two years of imprisonment. And in the last two verses of Acts, Luke says this, Paul stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence unhindered. So he had freedom to minister to people who came to see him. He doesn't have freedom to move around outside his house. And those, by the way, are the closing words of the book of Acts. And Paul's epistle to the Colossians basically takes up at that very point where Acts ends. And the last chapter of Colossians is full of greetings from other believers to other believers who who were there with Paul. So he's got a room full of people. He sends greetings from all of them, names them by name. And so he gives us a list of the names of people who were there with him, visitors. They weren't imprisoned with him, but they'd come to visit him. And he names Tychicus, Onesimus, Luke, Aristarchus, Mark, Epaphras, Justus, and Demas. So he has this room full of visitors, Epaphras, Tychicus, and Onesimus. Onesimus, you know, is that slave who's described in the epistle to Philemon. These three, he says, are on their way back to Colossae. 
They will carry this epistle and a couple of other epistles from Paul. Colossae was a long way from Rome. It was a thousand-mile journey, but it was mostly by sea. And in fact, if you want to get it in your head, the distance from Rome to Colossae, just in a straight line as the crow flies, is roughly the same as it is from here to the Canadian border. But it was mostly by sea, and so it could be an extremely dangerous journey, and in parts, in parts of the year it really was, because you had to sail around the Roman and Greek peninsulas, and then you had to land at Ephesus, and then after you landed at Ephesus, you had to travel another hundred miles inland in order to get to Colossae. And sailing in that region was not a luxury cruise. It is, you can do it today on a luxury cruise, but you couldn't then. Remember that Paul says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-five that he had been shipwrecked three times. I'd stop sailing. Well, I think I would. You know, I've been bomb-threaded at least as many times, and I haven't stopped traveling. So who knows? Anyway, and he also says, this is the one that's always intrigued me, a day and a night, he says, I've spent in the deep, meaning most likely that he had spent at one point in one of these shipwrecks 24 hours floating on a plank or a piece of wreckage after he was, you know, sunk in one of these shipwrecks. And it's interesting to me that Scripture records only one of the three shipwrecks, and the account of that one is harrowing. It's not the one that caused him to spend 24 hours floating in the sea. But anyway, the distance from Rome to Colossae was long and hard. And here's an interesting thing. Paul himself had never met with the Colossian church. The assembly of saints there was actually just an indirect result of Paul's missionary work in Ephesus. And I think it was Epaphras, probably, who had heard the gospel from Paul in Ephesus, and he took the good news back to Colossae. And this church, in Col- the Colossians, their church was a fruit of Epaphras's testimony and an indirect fruit of Paul's work. And so the fact that the Colossian church existed at all was one of the indirect fruits of Paul's missionary work. And he indicates in chapter 1, verse 4, that he has only heard of their faith in Jesus Christ and the love which they had for all the saints. And he also says in the first verse of chapter 2 that they had not seen his face in the flesh. So he's never been to this church. This is a letter to this church from a renowned apostle whom most of them did not know personally, but they certainly knew from Epaphras that Paul's words carried the weight of apostolic authority, and Epaphras, who had most likely served as a pastor of the Colossian church, had traveled to Rome to solicit Paul's help in answering some looming hazards, spiritual hazards, that were endangering the doctrinal orthodoxy of the Colossian church. False teachings had crept in among the Colossians, and they had the seeds of some very serious errors threatening to develop into full-blown heresy. And that's what this epistle is about. It's, uh, it's Paul's answer to those threats. It seems the errors threatening the Colossian church were an odd mixture of early Gnosticism and Jewish tradition with a little bit of Eastern mysticism and Greek philosophy thrown in to kind of sweeten the blend. 
So this is an eclectic blend of errors. And in fact, Paul addresses at least four strands of potential heresy in this short epistle. There was a strain of Jewish legalism. There are also some strong hints of Gnostic dualism. And underlying that is a lot of superstitious mysticism. And all three of those ideas fostered an over-reliance on one's own efforts to attain righteousness, to attain a righteous standing before God. And so among the saints in Colossae, there was a strong tendency to try to exhibit one's own self-righteousness with a display of sort of rigid asceticism, abstaining from everything pleasurable and all of that. As I said, this was an eclectic blend of bad religious ideas, and all of them were steeped in sub-orthodox, works-oriented, man-centered, self-righteous, pietistic sanctimony. (laughs) You see a lot of that even these days. But anyway, so you have four different strains of Uh, that are combining to make one monstrous off-ramp into the broad road that leads to destruction. There are elements of the Judaizing heresy. uh, That is the the heresy, of course, that Paul wrote the book of Galatians to confront. It was accompanied by the demand for physical circumcision. It's also the same error that is condemned by the first church council when they convened in Acts 15, There was also, in Colossae, an echo of the error that Paul condemns in the early chapters of 1 Corinthians, where someone was trying to upgrade the gospel by blending it with the wisdom of this world, philosophy, which, of course, is foolishness before God. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are foolish and useless. That's 1 Corinthians 3, verses 19 and 20. But they had that in, Colossian, in the Colossian church as well. And then, for, for good measure, to sort of all make it seem super spiritual, they added claims about heavenly visions and strict rules against all kinds of earthly enjoyments. And in fact, if you want four technical names for the four strains of error, I would label, label them legalism, Gnosticism, mysticism, and stoicism. Verse 16 in our chapter condemns the error of legalism, and in that one sentence, he completely debunks the heresy of the Judaizers. Verse 16, therefore, no one is to judge you in food or drink or in respect of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He's referring back to Old Testament ceremonial principles and saying, no one should judge you, and whether you observe those or not, And the other varieties of error that were troubling the Colossian assembly are all clearly at least alluded to in verse 18, where Paul says that whoever was teaching these things was, these are his words, defrauding the Colossians, threatening to rob them of their heavenly reward by enticing them to follow man-made teachings, delighting in self-abasement, that's stoicism, And the worship of the angels, that I think is a reference also to Stoic asceticism, and I'll explain why in a minute. And going into detail about visions he has seen, that's mysticism, being puffed up for nothing by his fleshly mind, that's Gnosticism. So he condemns in those two verses, legalism, Stoicism, mysticism, 
and Gnosticism, and, and of course, Paul's inspired denunciation of those errors actually applies then to any blend of ideas that is borrowed from those sources. Can't think of any heresy you could name that isn't covered by what Paul condemns in this chapter, even the, even the heresies we see you know, flourishing today. And it seems evident that whoever was peddling these ideas in Colossae wanted a religion that sounded more sophisticated and made it more palatable to the secular, wisdom-loving Greeks more than the simple gospel sounded. Whoever these false teachers were, they undoubtedly claimed to be Christians and perhaps even Christian leaders, authorities in the church. Heretics always make those claims, and, and they thought they were improving on the simplicity of the gospel by adding these beliefs that were more in harmony with what people in that culture were already being drawn to. They thought they were upgrading the gospel. And that way of mingling Christian truth with other religious notions happens all the time. It's called syncretism, and it always results in serious error because you cannot blend the revealed truth of God with the teachings or the commandments of men and come up with anything other than an ideological monstrosity. It destroys the gospel to try to blend it with purely human thinking or philosophy or anything else. Now, you know already that the Pharisees did this too in a very subtle way. They added man-made requirements for ceremonial washings, and they added extra rules for Sabbath observance, and they added lots of external and ritualistic embellishments to their observance of the clear commandments of Moses' law. They piled burden on burden on top of the law, and Jesus condemned them for that in the most emphatic way. Matthew 15, verses 3 through 9, he told them, you transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition. You have invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, he says, in vain do you worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He says as clearly as possible, we are not supposed to add to the word of God. That kind of legalism is perhaps the most sinister of all errors. And in, in the case of the Pharisees, it meant their religion, as fastidious as it was, was utterly worthless because it was a syncretized blend of biblical commandments mixed with human religiosity. And the result was a completely man-made religion, and it was utterly worthless. That's the word Jesus uses. And in fact, he treated it as damnable heresy. He was telling the Pharisees, if you persist in this direction, you will go to hell. He told them that in many ways over and over. Well, the same thing was beginning to happen in the church, in, among the Colossian believers, and that's why Epaphras had come to see Paul to seek his assistance. The religion of some of the people in the Colossian church was tending towards a similar kind of pharisaical externalism. They were obsessed with Sabbaths and ceremonies and all the pomp and circumcision that the Pharisees loved so much. And furthermore, because this was a predominantly Gentile region of the Roman Empire, 
the push to contextualize the gospel for that culture had blended Gnostic ideas and Greek philosophy and Eastern mysticism and blended it all with a heavy dose of Pharisaical-style legalism. And then all of that sort of overlaid the gospel in a way that obscured the preeminence and the sufficiency of Christ. So Paul's writing to correct all of those tendencies, and his strategy is to restore Christ to his rightful place in their their minds and their hearts. And, And also he wants to get their focus out of this world and off of the culture around them and to teach them to focus their minds on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. It's a message that the church today desperately needs to hear. People today are obsessed with what's happening in the culture and what's going on all around us and how can we better contextualize the gospel to this and and adopt ideas from the secular academy so that they don't think we're foolish. And Paul says, let them think we're foolish because the wisdom of, of this world is foolishness with God and his foolishness is wiser than men. Now, the central truth of Colossians chapter 2 is spelled out very clearly in verse 3. This is the key verse of the chapter. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's saying there's no need to embellish the gospel with the wisdom of the Greeks or the traditions of the Jews or the legalism of the Pharisees because Christ himself is perfectly sufficient. He alone embodies everything we need for life and godliness. He is literally everything we need. He is, after all, God incarnate. How could could he be lacking in anything that we need? He's God incarnate. Verse 9, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And therefore, verse 3, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Human philosophy cannot add anything to that. And by the way, don't be thrown off balance by the word hidden. Paul is not suggesting here that that Christianity is one of the mystery religions, you know, where deep truth, the real truth that you need to know is in order to be spiritually whole, it's some secret that you have to be initiated into by some enlightened master. That's what all the Gnostics taught. And Paul says this is not true Christianity. He's not saying the truth is hidden. On the contrary, he's telling the Colossians that they don't need to look anywhere other than Christ to find the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ is sufficient to meet every spiritual need you have. That is his point. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are contained in Christ, held in him, bound up in his person, not in order to keep them perpetually hidden from view, but quite the contrary, in order to put them within the reach of anyone and everyone who is united by, with Christ by faith. In, in chapter 3, verse 3, he's going to say to the Colossians, you are hidden in Christ as well, for you died and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. So hidden is a theme here. The treasures of wisdom and knowledge, not hidden in order to obscure them, but hidden in order to be contained there so that when you are united with Christ by faith and your life is hidden in Christ, you have access to all of, all of the resources of Christ. So there's no need to look elsewhere as if 
some deeper truth might be available from philosophy or the Gnostics or any other source outside of Christ and his word. And that's what this whole chapter is about. Again, the sufficiency of Christ. That's the theme here. And there are a couple of key expressions that I need to explain. One is the phrase, the elementary principles of the world. That You see that expression in verse 8 and again in verse 20. And it's defined by the context. What are the elementary principles of the world? He is not talking about earth, air, fire, and water. Those were considered the, the chief elements of the world by most people in ancient times, including the Greek philosophers and all that. That doesn't fit the context here. And also, Paul uses that same term twice in his epistle to the Galatians, Galatians chapter 4. In Galatians 4, 3, he says, while we were children, we were enslaved under the elemental things of the world. And then in verse 9 of chapter 4, he asks the Galatians why they would want to turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things. And in the context of Galatians 4, it becomes very clear that what he has in mind as the elements, the elementary things, he's talking about the ceremonial features of the Mosaic Covenant. All the ceremonies and feasts and external things, these are elemental or elementary in the same way that the letters of the alphabet are elementary. They're the first simplest things you teach to a child, and that becomes the building blocks for learning more complex things. And the fact is, once you've learned the alphabet song, you don't have to sign up for classes where that's what they're teaching. I hope. (laughs) You know, you can retain that truth and move on. But the, the Galatians and their neighbors, the Colossians, refused to leave the coloring books and baby toys behind. They were trying to cling to the Sabbaths and ceremonies of the Old Testament, even though, verse 17, those things were only a shadow of things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. Again, everything you need is in him. You know, it's like somebody who gets a beautifully wrapped birthday present, and he's so enthralled with the package that he forgets to open it and see what's inside. You know, kids are like that sometimes. When Is Jeremiah back there? I don't want to embarrass him, all right? But when he was a toddler, we got, a, we got this little chair for his playroom, and he didn't care much for the chair, but he played for weeks with the box it came in. Don't tell him I said that. Actually, he's back there. Sorry about that. On a spiritual level, that is what was happening in Colossae. People were becoming obsessed with ceremonies and Sabbaths, and even though those features of Moses' law were designed from the start to be temporary, just shadows, symbolic, and even though the Colossians now had the very substance of everything that those elementary features prefigured, represented, the Colossians were clinging to the symbols and the shadows rather than to the substance, which is Christ. So their focus was off Christ himself because they were obsessed with externalities, the things that merely symbolically represented Christ. And so they'd use his name and call themselves Christians, but they were focused on things that 
symbolized Christ, but they weren't him. And so Paul tells them in chapter 2, Christ is all you need. In him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 10, in him you have already been filled. Verse 11, in him you were already circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In other words, the point even of circumcision was not the literal ceremony itself, but what it symbolized. And if you're a believer in Christ, you're already circumcised because it's, it's a symbol of the cleansing of the heart, the circumcision of the heart. Verse 12, in him you were buried and raised again through faith. faith. Verses 13 and 15, in him you were made alive for your sin debt was canceled and the enemy of your soul was defeated and publicly humiliated, and therefore, verse 16, stop with this legalistic asceticism and guard the freedom with which Christ has set you free. Verse 16, no one is to judge you in food and drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. And that is Paul's answer to the legalizing Judaists, or the Judaizing legalists, however you want to say it. And then in verse 18, as we have seen, he likewise dismisses the claims of the Stoic, mystical, and Gnostic ascetics. In fact, look at those. The Stoic ascetic was someone who delighted in self-abasement. And, and because Paul links that to the worship of angels, I'm inclined that when he talks about worship of angels, I don't think he's talking about offering worship to angelic beings but rather he's describing a, a, a self-abasing attempt to mimic the style of worship that they believed was practiced by angels, where they would cover their faces and their feet and constantly recite the majesty and holiness of God. So that these guys were promoting an artificial brand of seraphic sanctimony, let's say, angelic-style worship, trying to simulate the pure holiness of the angels, but with externals. And you know, fallen creatures, such as you and I, we all are, we aren't capable of that level of purity. And uh, of course, so, so mimicking the look of it, by definition, becomes a kind of artificial piety. In fact, one commentator I read says the apostle probably has in mind, as he writes this, a sect very much like the Essenes, who were known for the strictness of their piety. You know, they lived in the desert and, and abstained from every convenience or pleasure in life. They spent most of their day reflecting on spiritual things. They abstained from all earthly pleasures. And their stated goal, what they said they were trying to do, was to live like the angels here on earth. And that's what I think this refers to not actually worship offered to angelic beings. But even if that's what he's talking about, worship offered to angels, it must be the case that whoever was doing this was claiming that, you know, I'm too weak and too contemptible to approach God directly, and so I pray and bow to the angels instead, because Paul clearly connects the worship of angels with the idea of a sanctimonious self-abasement, self-flagellation. So either way, it seems a condemnation of Stoic asceticism. And then in verse 18, he includes the mystical ascetic in his reproof. This is the guy who goes into detail about visions he has seen. I've had a guy on Twitter for two weeks 
telling me, you know, shame on me for not affirming his supernatural visions. It's that kind of thing. And you had to deal with it in the early church as well. And then Paul likewise takes a poke at the Gnostic ascetic. This is the person who claims to be privy to some secret knowledge. But Paul says anyone like that is just puffed up for nothing by his own fleshly mind. And that, by the way, is an accurate description of the whole spirit of Gnosticism. That's what Gnosticism does to people. It puffs them up. It makes them arrogant. Gnosticism is, by definition, an arrogant, supercilious brand of religiosity. And the person who thinks that he has been, you know, specially enlightened with regard to some secret knowledge, he is, as the ESV translates it, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. That's verse 18. In other words, no matter how strict his brand of asceticism may seem to be, Paul says it's just carnality. It's fleshly. Gnostics tend to be just like Pharisees in, and every other brand of asceticism. They wear the badges of their piety on their sleeves. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. And so, all of these errors fail, Paul says, and although all of them promise that they'll catapult their followers into a higher plane of sanctification, they actually halt a person's real spiritual growth because all of these ideas move the believer's focus away from where it properly belongs, namely fixed singularly on Christ, and they direct the person's energies and efforts and attention to something that has nothing to do with the doctrines and commandments of Christ. Verse 19, those who embrace these errors are not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. It's not a manufactured growth. It's not a growth that's accelerated as you, you know, portray yourself externally as more and more holy. That's actually counterproductive. Now, the other things that had captured the attention of the Colossians really boil down to one thing, asceticism. I've been using that word, asceticism. It's a a kind of extreme austerity, a severe austerity or or self-abasement. If you want a definition, asceticism is a rigorous but artificial, pious self-deprivation that is practiced for religious reasons. And asceticism of every variety, whether it's legalistic asceticism or stoic asceticism or mystical asceticism or Gnostic asceticism, all of these are unnecessary distractions from the pure and simple gospel of Christ, who Christ deserves first place in everything. But he especially deserves first place in his church and among his people. And moreover, Paul is saying, if you have Christ, you don't need anything else because, verse 9, in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and in him you have been filled. If you have Christ, why would you try to find sanctification or satisfaction in a religion that you've devised for yourself, rules you've made up and imposed on yourself? If Christ's work on your behalf is enough to save you, why would you add the burden of extra rules and supplementary works of your own? That's what Paul is saying. 
He wants them to see the absolute sufficiency of Christ and enjoy the freedom they have in him. Now, that's a long introduction. I know these are things you've already heard from me many times, but to paraphrase what Paul says in Philippians 3, these are truths I don't mind repeating because I love them, and also it's good for you to hear them again and again. So I don't apologize for the repetition. But now we come to our passage, verse 20. And Paul is going to sum up the point that he's made in this chapter by challenging them to think it through in the simplest possible terms. And then beginning in chapter 3, he's going to give them the remedy for the spiritual dilemma that they have created for themselves by listening to these false doctrines. And so here's our text, verses 20 through 23. I'll just read the text. If you have died with Christ to, uh, to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees, do not handle nor taste nor touch, which deal with everything destined to perish with use, which are in accordance with the commands and teachings of men, which are matters having, to be sure, a word of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. It's an interesting point that he makes. You know, you, you, can, you can abstain from every kind of fleshly indulgence, but it's really of no value in curing you from those, those tendencies and desires that push you towards fleshly indulgence. And right there, he sums up the problem with every strain of heresy that has, that has assaulted the, Corinth, the Colossian assembly. As I said, it was a web of bad influences, and the fruit of it was an utter corruption of the gospel at its very heart. The gospel message is that God alone saves and Christ alone is the Savior. He saves by grace alone through faith alone. And notice the formula when we say that, because we say it all the time. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that word alone in each case speaks of sufficiency. But these corrupting influences all effectively remove the word alone from the formula. And that's what makes it wrong. The, the various flavors of asceticism Paul is addressing here were all sort of de facto denials of the sufficiency of grace and the sufficiency of faith, and worst of all, the sufficiency of Christ. And Paul has three observations about the nature of these errors. First, he's saying if your religion is defined by what you do and you don't do, and you live your whole life, verse 20, as if you were living in the world, in other words, you're living as though you still belong to the world, then you don't really believe God's grace is sufficient. And second, if your spiritual standing is determined by your personal obedience to a list of demands and restrictions, verse 21, do not handle or taste nor touch, then faith alone is not the sole and sufficient instrument of your justification. And third, if you believe you're still bound to the ceremonial statutes of the Old Covenant, verse 20, the elementary principles of the world, that you were merely, these things that were, were merely precursors to Christ's shadows. But you think you're duty-bound to observe all those signs and symbols. 
then you don't really believe in this total sufficiency of Christ. And furthermore, if you're still living, verse 22, in accordance with the commands and teachings of men, then you don't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture either. In other words, this type of asceticism denies the principles of sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, and sola scriptura, all the principles of the Reformation that we talk about all the time. Paul is, of course, not here defending the Protestant Reformation, but he was laying the foundation for it. So I I say don't call yourself Reformed or Protestant if you are practicing any of these brands of asceticism. Also, in these four verses that we're looking at, the apostle gives three reasons why asceticism is a corruption of the gospel. It's not just a bad idea. It's not just a dangerous practice. It absolutely corrupts the gospel. Why? First, he points out that unlike the gospel, which is in every regard Christ-centered, ascetic religion is by definition works-oriented instead. Second, the gospel is entirely God's work. The gospel message is all about God's work. By grace you're saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. So the gospel highlights the work of God. The working, of, the working out of salvation is entirely subject to God's will. The fruit of the gospel is eternal. But by contrast, ascetic religion is worldly. And along with the elementary principles of the world, Paul says, asceticism is, verse 22, destined to perish with use. It focuses on things that are temporal and worldly and destined to perish with, it takes your eyes off the eternal perspective that you should have. And then third, the gospel announces that Christ's victory is already complete. That's the gospel message. Christ has triumphed over sin and Satan. Through Christ, God has already accomplished his plan, and he has guaranteed its eternal success because, verse 15, having disarmed rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having, past tense, triumphed over them in Christ. In other words, well, by contrast, ascetic religion he calls worthless. So Christ is triumphant, asceticism is worthless, In other words, all the errors that were being spread in the Colossian church were works-oriented, worldly, and worthless. And so his entire criticism of these errors can neatly be summarized in these three alliterated points. So let's consider them one at a time. If you're taking notes, here's point one. Asceticism is works-oriented. These are vital verses. In, In one simple statement, Paul rejects those who want to impose the ceremonial statutes from the Mosaic Covenant, including all the dietary laws, the ceremonial aspects of Sabbath observance, and basically all the showy elements of ceremony and sacerdotalism, the same things that the Pharisees were so enamored with. And Paul is making the point that meritorious works play no part, our meritorious works play no part in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Someone in Colossae was promoting the same error that Paul addresses in the book of Galatians, telling the Gentiles that they couldn't be saved unless 
they observed all the ceremonial and dietary statutes of the Old Covenant. And Paul is simply echoing the teaching of Christ here. To impose any laws about ceremonial cleanness or the Old Testament dietary restrictions or even priestly requirements from the Old Testament, that would be totally contrary to the the clear teaching of Christ because in Mark 7.15, Jesus said, there is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the thing, it can make you sick, by the way. He's not denying that. He's saying it can't defile you spiritually, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. Again, he's talking about spiritual defilement there. Now, think about that again. Listen to Jesus. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. That would be a very hard saying for anyone who is steeped in the law of Moses to receive because the law was full of ordinances about ceremonial defilement. Here's just a few of them. Numbers 9, uh, 19, verse 11. The one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days. And getting rid of that uncleanness required ceremonial cleansing twice, once on the third day, and then again on the seventh day. Then you have also Numbers 19, verse 12. If he does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. And verse 13, anyone who touches a corpse, the body of a man who has died and does not purify himself, makes the tabernacle of Yahweh unclean, and that person shall be cut off from Israel because the water for impurity was not splashed on him. He shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. Now, again, the water of impurity was a vial of water that itself wasn't physically antiseptic. This is not talking about germs that cause physical sickness. This is about spiritual cleanness. And if you touched a body, you were ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. And And that was an ordeal if you got defiled. And there were lots of things that could defile you like that. The eating of unclean foods... That was a big one, by the way. And so when Jesus says, nothing outside the man can defile him, even the disciples are understandably confused. And Jesus' answer is significant. He says, Mark 7, 18, are you lacking in understanding in this way as well? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then it goes into the sewer? And then Mark, the gospel writer, adds this inspired commentary on that. Thus he declared all foods clean. I've been criticized by some Christians because I said, I, I admitted once that uh, when I was in the Philippines, I ate some soup made from pig's blood. It's gross, yes. And it didn't taste good either. But... But people sometimes want to scold me for, for disobeying things that were forbidden in the Old Testament. Jesus actually declared all foods clean. All the dietary laws were instantly abrogated when Jesus said that. That's Paul's point. Because those things were symbolic and ceremonial in the first place. As Paul says in our text, 
verse 22, those rules deal with everything that is destined to perish with use. So they were never more than temporary precepts designed to teach us about the absolute holiness of God, symbolically, in symbols. And since Christ himself abolished the dietary restrictions that Israel lived under in, under the Old Covenant, it's arrogant folly to make new rules and to think that you are honoring Christ by doing that. What those rules do is establish a works-based system of righteousness, and so they are inherently and definitionally self-righteous because they're not expressions of the righteousness of God. He hasn't commanded that. And though they are supposed to make us appear super spiritual, they're actually expressions of self-will rather than the will of God, because you put those rules on yourself. God didn't. And that's why we should never impose any, on any other Christian a spiritual rule that is not expressly taught in Scripture. You're free to do or not do whatever you want. But you can't make those things into spiritual rules and, and put those weights on other people because we are not to go beyond what is written. That's 1 Corinthians 4, 6. We studied it just a few weeks ago. And if you want a biblical rule to go by, that's a good one. Don't go beyond what's written. It's biblical. It's not a work to be done, but a truth to be received by faith. And it's the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. Don't go beyond what is written. Paul uses an interesting word to speak of these legalistic lists of do's and don'ts. And in the Legacy Standard Bible, which is what I've been using, it's translated decrees, end of verse 20. Why do you submit yourself to decrees? The Greek word there is dogmatizo, dogmas, human decrees. Extra-biblical revelations, you know, regulations, ascetic lists of do's and don'ts. Verse 21, do not handle, nor taste, nor touch. So he's talking about legal works whose aim supposedly is to gain righteousness and, and thereby add something to the perfect righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us, as if some merit could be added to him. And Paul's point is that asceticism is inherently works-based legalism. And there was hardly any flavor of heresy that Paul hated more than that. So asceticism is, by definition, works-based, works-oriented religion, self-righteousness. Now, second, asceticism is worldly, he says. This one may surprise you, because you wouldn't think of it as worldly. You'd think of it almost as otherworldly. But Paul says it's worldly, and there's an irony here Asceticism purports to be otherworldly. The ascetic believes that by saying no to earthly enjoyments, he is living at an elevated level of spiritual consciousness. But Paul says that whole way of thinking is rooted in the elementary principles of the world. The beliefs and the lifestyle of the ascetic deal only with worldly and temporal issues. Verse 22, everything that's designed to perish with use. So all the rules and regulations that have been cobbled together to make these ascetic religious systems, verse 22, are in accordance with the commands and teachings of men. They don't come from God. And therefore, he refers to this brand of spirituality in verse 23 
as self-made religion. And again, the Greek expression here is really interesting. That phrase, self-made religion, is actually a translation of a single word in the Greek text, ephelothroskeia. It's a, a word that's made from two root words, one that means the will and the other that means worship. And in fact, in the King James Version, it's translated as will worship. And I think that's a fitting translation because the kind of religious system Paul is criticizing here always elevates the human will, willpower, free will, human autonomy, will worship. Now, no Christian ever ought to put an ounce of faith in human willpower. Scripture makes it abundantly clear in the first place that our salvation from sin is not a matter of human willpower or human free will. According to John 1.13, those who receive Christ and are born again were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's as Calvinistic a statement as you'll ever find. And what he's saying, what John is saying there and what Paul is saying in our text is this. There is no power in the human will. Even the redeemed will is crippled by the sin and sinful desires that remain in our flesh. And Paul is describing that very situation when he gives his own testimony in Romans 7, verse 18. He writes, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. He's, he's talking about the impotency of the human will. He's expressly saying that he, Paul, the mature apostle, cannot, by sheer force of his own will, make himself do right. He doesn't have the power to do that because there is a conflict in his will. As a believer, he loves the the law of God, he wants to obey it, but he cannot obey it consistently because his flesh is driven by contrary desires and selfish cravings and ungodly lusts, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, and these are opposed to each other that to keep you from doing the things you want to do. That's Galatians 5.17. And one thing that almost all false religions have in common is that they try to glorify the human will of all things. Most religions virtually make the human will and human willpower an object of worship. The only power they really put any trust in is their own willpower. And that's why man-made religions are so prone to asceticism, self-discipline, self-improvement, legalistic rules. And that word, ethelothroskeia, could, could be translated self-willed religion. In the Legacy Standard Bible, the English Standard Version, the New American Standard Bible, all say self-made religion. The New International Version says self-imposed worship. And the New King James says self-imposed religion. And all of those things are included in this idea will worship. It, it always ultimately entails a deliberate imposition of rules and restrictions that God himself has not required. It's an unwarranted intrusion that works against the simplicity of the gospel and the sufficiency of Christ. So asceticism is a, 
man-made religion, a man-centered religion, a religion that magnifies the human will rather than God's will, asceticism does this by substituting self-imposed man-made rules in place of God's commands. And the assumption that underlies this tendency is the, the false notion that full righteousness is ultimately attained by the exercise of human willpower. And the fact is, nothing could be further than the truth, from the truth. Asceticism may have, as Paul says in verse 23, an appearance of wisdom, but to borrow words from James 3.15, this wisdom does not descend from above, but it's earthly and sensual and demonic. It's worldly wisdom, and as Paul tells us elsewhere, the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. So asceticism is fatally flawed because it is works-oriented and it is worldly. Now third, asceticism is worthless. End of verse 23. These things, these works-oriented, worldly ascetic dogmas are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh because they're external only. They might modify your behavior in the sight of men, but they cannot transform your heart in the sight of God. They can't renew your mind or cleanse your conscience. And so at the end of the day, they're worthless. Remember, all of these errors establish one or another brand of super-spiritual pietistic legalism. All of them are marked by pride and self-will, even if by all outward appearances they involve a kind of ostentatious display of lowliness, self-abnegation, that's phony. And so this brand of religion may give the appearance of profound wisdom and self-denial, pious self-denial, but actually all it does is gratify the flesh because it scratches that pharisaical itch to do one's good deeds in front of others so that they can see. And to make a spectacle of your religion through austerity, that does not cultivate true holiness. It actually cultivates pride, and it's worthless. Speaking of worthlessness, I'm sure you've heard the old cliche that, you know, some people are so heavenly-minded that they're of no earthly good. I hate that cliche, because no doubt someone would use that saying with regard to these ascetics, you know, that they're so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly use. But here's what I want you to see. That's practically the opposite of what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He says asceticism isn't heavenly minded, it's worldly. It's rooted in the elementary principles of the world and the cure he will prescribe for them. In the next two verses, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, is to keep seeking the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. He wants them to be more heavenly-minded, not less. I've been a born-again believer now for more than half a century. Hard to believe, because it still feels new. But as long as I can remember, there have always been people in the church who scold their fellow believers for being too heavenly-minded. And I don't find even the hint of any warning like that in Scripture. But, you know, it's an incessant complaint from 
people who crave worldly influence and they're unhappy with the fact that the world doesn't admire and applaud the church. And sometimes it comes from the left, and sometimes it comes from the right. Sometimes the critics are liberal voices. Sometimes they're very conservative. Fifteen or twenty years ago, the most liberal wing of the emerging church movement were, they were the loudest ones scolding mainstream evangelicals for being too heavenly-minded. In fact, let me read you a sample. This is from Brian McLaren, who at the time, 15 years ago or so, had far more influence than he should have ever had among evangelicals. But he wrote this, quote, "'More and more of us are realizing something our best theologians have been saying for quite a while. Jesus' message is not actually about escaping this troubled world for heaven's blissful shores, as is popular, popularly assumed,' But instead, the gospel is about God's will being done on this troubled earth as it is in heaven. So people interested in being a new kind of Christian will inevitably begin to care more and more about this world, and they'll want to better understand its most significant problems, and they'll want to find out how they can fit in with God's dreams actually coming true down here more often. Now, McLaren You don't hear much from him anymore. He's still out there causing trouble, I think, but he's a classic liberal, both politically and theologically, and how he ever passed himself off as an evangelical mystifies me, frankly, but he said these things in a context where he was advocating for the church to be more vocal about some very specific politically correct ideas. He had a list of stylish, environmentally sound, and politically correct socio-political issues that he insisted these things ought to consume Christians' thoughts more than the hope of heaven. Instead of thinking about heaven so much, we should be specifically concerned with environmentalism and poverty and the threat of global war. He was troubled, he said by, these are his words, the failure of the world's religions especially its two largest religions, to provide a framing story capable of healing or reducing these earthly crises, global warming and whatnot. Now, you understand, I hope, that Christianity already has a perfectly good framing story, and it includes a number of truths that Brian McLaren dismissed out of hand, including the hope of heaven. And there's a sinister disconnect between what McLaren was saying there and what the Bible teaches here. I I can easily think of half a dozen key places in Scripture where we are told, commanded, to set our affections on things above and look forward eagerly to heaven. And most, if not all, of those passages are set in contexts where saints are either being encouraged in the midst of trials or admonished against the sin of worldliness. And that's the stress Scripture puts on. It tells us to be more heavenly-minded. Woke religion, more recently than McLaren, wokeness is one of the bitter fruits of the ideas that McLaren and the emerging church movement were peddling two decades ago. Today, however, it seems the people telling us we're too obsessed with heaven actually come from the right wing of the political spectrum, people who call themselves Christian nationalists. Not all, but many of them 
seem to think that the only cure for what ails our culture must be brought about by political means or some kind of armed revolution or whatever. And in their minds, the reason for the moral decline of our culture is not because the church became worldly or because evangelicals compromised the gospel. That's what I would say the underlying problem is. But they think instead that the root problem is that the church hasn't been engaged enough in the world and its political system, mainly through political activism, to to summon our collective clout against bad politicians and bad laws. And it is obvious, to be sure, that the the moral unraveling of postmodern culture in the Western world has been accelerated by the political system. No question about that. And the course of American politics definitely reflects our society's movement away from biblical moral values. But the underlying problem is not merely political, and no legislative or political clout can fix the problem. The problem is spiritual, and what the church needs most desperately to do is get back to proclaiming the truth of God's Word, all of it, with authority and conviction, because the gospel is the power of God for salvation, not some legislation. The culture is in a moral freefall because all but a small remnant in our culture today have unregenerate hearts, including many people who go to church every Sunday. Their hearts have never been regenerated, and no amount of legislation can change that. In fact, as Galatians 2.21 says, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died unnecessarily, which is to say righteousness isn't going to be coming through the law. No matter what laws you make, you are not going to make our culture more righteous by those means. And the worst possible thing the church of Jesus Christ could do is to become more earthly-minded, you know, trusting in human might and power and opinion polls and political clout, as if we could harness the machinery of the political world to force God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Instead, our duty as the people of God is to bring heaven to earth by making disciples. And that involves going into all the world and preaching the gospel. Luke 24, verse 47, tells us explicitly what that entails, and namely, is, it is the message that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in Jesus' name to all nations. That's our duty. And Paul makes this explicit in his very next words. We've been looking at the end of Colossians 2. Now, turn the page, or you don't literally have to do that, but look at the start of Colossians 3. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. That's clear, isn't it? It's it's a good and righteous thing to be heavenly-minded. False religion and bad doctrine and human arrogance and fleshly lusts all always team up to attack and belittle the idea of heavenly-mindedness. But conversely, keeping your heart and mind fixed on heaven, that's a powerful remedy for wayward spirituality. It's the way to get back on track. And Paul prescribes it here as the answer to all four of these errors 
that were assaulting the Colossian church, legalism, stoicism, mysticism, Gnosticism, they're all answered by this one thing. Fix your hearts on heaven. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. That is the best way to ensure that your faith is not a false religion. Let's pray. Father, focus our minds and our hearts and all of our strongest desires on things above where Christ is, seated at your right hand, and teach us to be pure-minded, heavenly-minded, Christ-like in all of our thoughts and ambitions. Keep our faith pure and free from will worship, and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but by the means you have chosen. Draw us close, hold us fast, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson, all rights reserved.